Ha ha ha! Hindsight 2012. I get it. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I'm gonna be sick. <laughs> <laughs> This is Movie Bite, a weekly show where we discuss, praise, lament, or lampoon movies, TV shows, culture, and more. Today is Wednesday, December 12, 2012. I'm your host, TJ Draper, and I'm joined by my co-host, Joseph Darnell. How are you, Joseph? Good evening, TJ. Great to be back. I'm yes. happy. Yeah, and we have with us today a special guest, uh, Melinda Snodgrass. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's it's a wonderful pleasure to have you on. Uh, and I'm sorry for our mix-up a little bit earlier, but uh, we're glad to have you on now. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I've i seen you around on Twitter and stuff, and I went to the special screening for Star Trek The Next Generation uh, here in my local theater and uh, saw The Measure of a Man in HD on the big screen. And that is just such uh, such an awesome episode. And I thought, you know, I ought to try to get her on our podcast to talk a little bit about it. So it's great to have you here. I'm happy to do it. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, just so you know, Melinda, I'm, I'm kind of the Star Trek nerd on this podcast. And Joseph is familiar with Star Trek, I, I guess you would say. Is that right, Joseph? Oh, for the most part, I've been more of a original series fan, but I'm just starting to get my feet wet with the TNG series. So, yeah, you'll have to forgive me, Melinda. I haven't got to see uh, season two. Before TJ brought this episode up and discussion of Star Trek and your work, I'd actually started uh, through uh, season one about um, about a month ago. And so I'm still working through the first season of uh, The Next Generation. Well, it, I, I think it took a while for it to kind of find its feet, if you will. Um, I'm, I'm with you. I'm actually an original Trek fan. I, I was a little girl, and I just fell in love with Kirk and Spock and McCoy. And it was like everything I'd been reading and dreaming about was suddenly on television. And it was so exciting for me. So, But that also meant when I got a chance to go to work on Star Trek, any kind of version of Star Trek, I was really thrilled because that was my childhood, and that was a visualization of all my dreams come true, you know. Yeah, definitely. Now, since since you're an original fan of Star Trek, uh, let me just ask you this: um, how do you, how do you feel about the uh, remastering in HD and with all the new effects of the original series? Are you for that or against that? Oh, I thought it was beautiful, and and I think you know audiences are very used to really high quality visuals now and and production values, and I think it would have been a mistake to have kept the kind of older looking special effects in place for this big Blu-ray release. I think they did a really smart thing and I'm, I'm really grateful they did it. And in the case of measure, I mean, that was a real, that was a real struggle because I was the only person who had a VHS tape of that extended cut and I had the only copy of it. Um, but when they looked at the VHS, which, which was very old and all the problems, this terrific guy at CBS, who sort of has honchoed this project, said, we gotta, we got to redo it. Let's go back to the negatives and, and do everything up um, you know, at, the cut, at the state-of-the-art visual effects that we can do. And, you know, I admit, when I, I saw it in California, I flew out um, to see it with Rob Burnett and, and Mike Okuda and some other folks who had been involved with the show and... and uh, I was terrified because there was a giant screen in Century City, and I thought, what if this looks horrible? I mean, you know, because TV, when you blow it up like that, suddenly every flaw can show up. Right, uh, so, right. Yeah, so I was really nervous, and it it was lovely. I mean, I think they just did a gorgeous job, and, and you know, my hat's off to them. 
Yeah, it was. It was absolutely uh, beautiful, frankly. And especially, you know, we've been used to seeing TNG and these horrible transfers uh, over to DVD, and the transfers just weren't done that well. You know, me being, uh, I'm, I'm a video editor, and so I know, I know a little bit about the business, and, and just know, the, the transfers just weren't handled that well. And, and so that's what we've had for years. And so this is, I mean, this is just a, a huge undertaking. And uh, it looks absolutely amazing. And it's, it's not quite as easy either as the original series. If, you, if you've if you been like I have following uh, Mike Akuda and Denise and just listening to them talk about the, the process, they, they have to re-edit all these, you know, from the original negatives. And not it's not quite like the original series, what they did with that. So... It's, yeah, they've done a tremendous job. I mean, they're so incredibly talented. Um, they should be working all the time because they just do gorgeous work. We have a question in the chat room for those listening live. They want to know what the process for the writers who made the episodes for the Next Generation series, what was the process, and did Gene Roddenberry have much involvement? He actually didn't um, have a lot of involvement in the writers' room. Eventually, that that task fell primarily to Ira Bear, who was our co-executive producer. Um, Ira, who then went on to run Deep Space Nine. And right. I can't say good about Ira. He was fabulous. Um, the process was was something new to me because I had been a novelist before I went to out to California. And uh, I love the writer's room. So what happens is we'd all get in the room and somebody would have an idea for a script and throw out the basic idea. And then we would sort of get a rough idea of, what the five acts would be and then run it by our bosses in an outline form. And then they would say yes or no. And if they said yes, we would go back into the room and that would have been Ira Bear, Ron Moore eventually who joined us, uh, Rick Manning and Hans Beimler and I, and we would do what's called breaking a story. Um, and I love this process. So I have to roll back a little bit. So my friend George R. Martin and I have this constant battle about what is the best way to write and George says that I'm an architect, which means I like to have everything plotted and worked out in advance and know the beginning and the big major scenes and know the end before I start writing. George says he's a gardener. He likes to sort of plant a seed and see what grows. It could be a eucalyptus tree or it might be Brussels sprouts. He never knows. That would make me crazy. And in Hollywood, in, in, in film and television, you really can't do that, especially on a TV show. You have to know what this is going to be. Sure. I far prefer your approach, Melinda. <laughs> well, I do too. I mean, I'm biased. I think ultimately end up with a more coherent story, and and it also doesn't waste time. I mean, there's a lot of time spent writing into swamps and then discovering it was a swamp too late and having to roll back. I try to find the swamps in the outline form and say, "Don't go there. That's a swamp." Uh, but what we would then do is, if we had the basic idea of the story, then we would break it on the whiteboard. Um, it varies. When I worked on, when I was a producer on the show Profiler, we used a cork board and three by five cards. I have to say, I think the three by five cards are preferable because you can just pull it out if the scene isn't working and write a new card. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, on the whiteboard and Star Trek, it was trying to erase the scene that wasn't working and move it, and it became a lot more cumbersome. But that was my first exposure to this process, and it's genius. It was just genius. Um, so then you, you know, you write across the top of the board or you create cards that say teaser and then act one, act two, act three, act four, act five, or act four, depending on how, by how your show is broken up. Star Trek was a teaser in five, which was agonizing because it means you have to come up with four exciting moments so that people won't change the channel at the commercial break. Right. Only having to do it three times. Um, 
So that was a much more difficult process. And then you start filling in. Um, and the trick I learned, which I'm sorry, I could just talk forever about this because I love oh. plotting and I love this. How, how I, I this. love listening to it. So go right ahead. Well, what we would do and what I discovered works best, and it's actually how I plot all my books and all my screenplays. Now, after I've got that, the first thing I put in are the act outs. I put in the final acts first, uh, con- what the end scene is, what that final scene is, what the end of act one, the end of act, and then I plot backwards. That makes a lot of sense. It's, it's really so much easier than trying to just sort of plow toward it. And, and you can sort of stick in what you know are the big, what I call tentpole scenes. Um, you can just sort of put them in randomly and then you begin to hone where they're going to fit. Um, so that was what we would do. Um, the other thing that we did, which I thought was really useful, is we assigned a different colored pen to each character so that you had a visual cue if one of your characters had suddenly fallen out of the bottom of your script. Oh, nice. I mean, I remember one afternoon we all looked up and we realized that Troy had just disappeared after Act 2. <laughs> and so we were like, okay, we need some scenes for, for Marina here. Um, and so we went back in and filled those in. On a TV show, this is somewhat easier because you have certain sets that you have to go to because they're amortizing them. So you know you're going to have a 10-forward scene. You know you're going right. to have a you know, And that makes it a lot easier. When you're doing a feature film, you don't exactly know, um, you know what are going to be the – you're creating it from, from whole cloth and looking for the right scenes in, in that. Um, and I do my movies the same way. I think of them as a teaser in three acts or sometimes – sorry about that. Uh, that's all right. It's just three acts. So that, that's you know, how I work it. And, and it – I think it works very well. Yeah, now I want to talk a little bit more about Measure of a Man. Uh, it, was that, uh, it, now forgive me if I have this wrong, but I believe you said that, that in, in the uh, interview before the showing that I went to, that that was your first episode that you wrote for Star Trek? Yes, that was my spec script. Okay. So, okay. <laughs> so I'm writing novels and I'm working on a project. George Martin and I are doing wild cards together. And so George went off to Hollywood. Uh, to work on New Twilight Zone and then Beauty and the Beast. And he called me from California and he said, you know, I think you'd be really good at the script writing stuff because you have all the strengths that are required for that, which is, you know, very strong characterization, strong voice, sense of dialogue, and you plot like crazy and that's what's needed for, for working out here. If you write a spec script, I'll show it to my agent. And I said, Okay. So I I looked around on television and I had been trained as an attorney. I had actually practiced law for three years before I quit to write. And um, so I looked at LA law and I said, nah, that's too hard. I don't know how to squeeze in because it looked like it was very carefully plotted. I wasn't going to write a Beauty and the Beast script because I thought that's really unfair to my friend because what if I write a really horrible script? And then, Mm. you know, George is faced with the task of saying, wow, Melinda, this is really, or showing it to his bosses and having them say, wow, this is a really terrible script. Why did you bring this to us? (laughs) So I grew up on track. And so I started watching track. I hadn't actually started watching the show back then. Um, So I watched the first season and paid attention to the voices. And then I got this idea, um, which was the Dred Scott decision, which was an infamous court decision by the Supreme Court which ruled that a black man was actually property. 
And I had found Data to be the most interesting character on the show, which I actually find kind of a sad statement, but um, since he's a robot. And I thought, this works perfectly for Data. You know, is he a person or is he the property of Starfleet Command? So George had given me this very firm lecture about how, now understand, you never, ever, ever sell your spec script. Your spec script is your calling card. All it does is get you in the door. And once you get in the door, they'll ask you perhaps to come in and pitch. So you should have three to five other ideas for Star Trek episodes if you should get that far. But remember, Uh. never, ever, ever sell your script. So I said, okay. Um, And then I said, well, you know, I really think this Dred Scott thing is a really good idea. And maybe I ought to save it for my pitches and write something else. And George gave me some of the best advice I've ever gotten in my life, which was, he said, never hoard your silver bullet. And I went, okay, that sounds logical. So I wrote Measure. And, um, and, the other, and then they bought it. Um, so, and then after they bought it, they hired me. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad they did because it's a fantastic episode. You know, you know it's kind of interesting to me. I've watched every episode of Star Trek that has ever existed, and you know, seasons one and two, frankly, were of of, of TNG were not that great. I mean, <laughs> they T- TNG really. I mean, season three. I was actually just looking through the list as I was writing a post on Movie Byte uh, just a couple days ago, and I was looking through the list of season three, and season three had so many great episodes, but season two and season one were kind of like this island of of bad. Uh, frankly, writing and bad dialogue, and just and then then all of a sudden, here's this great episode, this gem. I mean, way up there. If I had to make a top ten list or even a top five, I think Measure the Man would be in there. So because well, apparently there has been that list made, and and I usually come in in the top three, which makes me feel and that's of all Star Trek shows, which makes me feel really good. I mean, all the different versions of Star Trek, and I'm I'm very honored by that. Um, yeah, I mean, I came in halfway through second season because I was hired after the writer struck. Um, I wrote my script, George sent it to his agent, and then the WGA went on strike for six months, and so I forgot about it. So I was hired, actually, for only about half of season two. I was not there uh, from the beginning. I came in later after the after they resumed production. So, um, and, and Ricky and Hans had come back at that point, and they were huge Star Trek fans, like me. They'd grown up on original Trek. I mean, to be honest, when I sat down to write Measure, I was trying to write what I thought was a first-generation Trek script. You know, what, because there was a humanism to original Trek that I, that I loved. Um, and so I was trying to tap into that, and, uh, and you know, it seemed to work. <laughs> Yeah, well, it, it definitely did. I mean, um, I, I want to move a little bit to, like, the casting. One of the questions I have here is, uh, you, you know, the, you had to cast a couple of new characters for this uh, ep- particular episode, uh, just for that episode, such as uh, Captain Lavoie and uh, Bruce Maddox. Uh, were, were you happy with the, the casting of those characters? I was very pleased. I, I thought they did a great job. Now, Trek was a little odd in that the writers weren't normally, we were not permit, we were not involved in casting, um, which was strange because then I went on to other shows and discovered that that's not the normal procedure. Usually you're in casting on your episodes, it's your right. But my boss, Morris Hurley, really fought um, 
for for Philippa. Uh, there had been some discussion of another woman who who Maury described as kind of a blonde Cupid doll, and <laughs> she didn't have enough bite. And Maury really held out. Um, and and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm blanking. No, thank you. Thank God that didn't happen. <laughs> Yeah, it would have been really a disaster because she needed to be able to stand up to Picard. And um, and so I love that casting. And I thought Maddox had that appropriate kind of passionate scientist, you know, who just who would walk over anything to to fulfill that, you know, to see if his experiment was right, if what he was doing would work. I, I thought it, I thought that it was they were both just terrific in the in the roles. And yeah. I actually I mean, I. I have to say, too, that, I mean, one of the things I tried to write in is there's some rivalry between Picard and Riker, and I thought it was some of the most beautiful work Jonathan ever did um, in this episode. I, Jonathan, I think, was an underappreciated actor and an underutilized actor because he's really good. Oh, absolutely. I, I've always enjoyed, uh, you know, his character, Commander Riker, and anything that I've seen Jonathan Frakes in, certainly. So, um yeah, and and I yeah I, personally I really thought the casting of Captain Lavoie especially was perfect for for the role uh, and 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 well able to stand up to Captain Picard and she had some great lines especially in the extended cut which we'll get to a little bit in a minute. Um, so I think you've already alluded to this a little bit, but just how so how involved once once the the script was accepted and they started shooting and the editing process how involved were you in that? Not at all. Um, that was another odd quirk about Star Trek. We we weren't involved. Um, Maury took me over to the set once while they were shooting Measure, um, and that was truly the most thrilling thing that's ever happened to me, um, to stand on a soundstage and hear actors deliver your dialogue. I mean, I, I thought I'd had a big high when my first novel was on the bookshelves in a bookstore, mm-hmm. but it was nothing compared to this. Um, that was sort of one of the most amazing experiences of my life. But other than that one visit to the set, uh, I was not involved. So, again, like I said, it was one of the odd quirks of Star Trek in that the writing staff was completely cut out of those kind of decisions. And, and as I later learned when I was working on a show called Reasonable Doubts, uh, the editing room is, is where real magic can happen. I mean, you can fix a script in editing if you've got a good editor. Yeah. It's like a chance to rewrite the script. <laughs> um, and thank God for it. Now, speaking of editing, this show came in, and, and you said in your, uh, your uh, what is it called, special features before the show, of the showing that I saw, you, you mentioned that uh, the, you tend to be very dialogue-driven and dialogue-heavy, at least in this script, for sure, and they, it, it came in 13 minutes too long, and they had to, they had to cut a lot out to get it down to air, air length. Were you, were you disappointed with any of the decisions they made, now, especially now knowing that you weren't involved in that process? Were you disappointed in any of those decisions they made on what to cut in order to get it down to broadcast length? Well, you know, at the time I was disappointed because I, I didn't understand. I was new to Hollywood, and I didn't understand that the first thing that goes when something is long are the character moments. Uh, so, you know, I was like, but that was a good character moment. I mean, I had always really liked the scene between Picard and Riker because I always thought that Riker had been made too passive on that show. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of military guys, and, you know... To have your own command, even if it was a garbage scow, you would take that command. <laughs> and they kept having him. He seemed so weak. Oh, no, Captain, I'm turning down this promotion because I want to continue to serve with you. And I really hated that. 
And so, and, and also I wanted some of the bite that you had in the original show where, 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 you know, Picard and uh, Picard, uh, Kirk and Spock would argue or Spock and, and Bones would argue. And I wanted a little of that. So that was the scene I really was sorry to lose was where Riker, you know, tells Picard, I'm going to, I'm going to win this. I'm going to try to win this. Um, and I like the scene between Geordi and, uh, and Data. Oh, yes. So, those were, you know, but I understood, you know, it's the tyranny of the time. You have 47 minutes and that's what's going to happen. Um, and it's interesting because as I've done a lot more, I've discovered that when I write action, it shoots very fast. Um, but especially when you're doing a courtroom drama, you can have a lot of dialogue and they're not going to be delivering it in that same sort of casual way you would deliver techno babble. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Patrick just did a beautiful job. Um, making his arguments, but that requires you to slow down and, you know, add dramatic pauses and do these kind of things that stretched it out. Yeah, and, and you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Patrick Stewart. He's a great actor, but, man, this was such a great performance of his, too, you know? And, yeah, and I would agree, too, with you, Melinda, that based on what I have seen from first season, how passive it seems that the captain is as a character, and you're absolutely right. It's something that I was looking forward to based on things I've heard about later episodes beyond season one was when he would pick it up and get involved and have an opinion about something. Yeah, well, I mean, everybody was awfully, I mean, there were times when we desperately in the writer's room would desperately want to have Kirk kiss a girl and punch a bad guy and have a robot's head explode because he, you know, offered it a conundrum. I mean, you know, <laughs> yes, it was cheese, but it was it was passionate. And, uh, and, and we really, you know, sometimes desperately wanted to write that again. And, and in a way, in measure, I got that opportunity. Hmm. Yeah. Now, um, so so speaking of the extended cut, as we did a moment ago, um, how how do you feel about the new extended cut? Are, are you were, are you happy with it now that it's out there? Was there is there anything you wish was different about the extended cut? Tell us a little bit about that. I, you know, this sounds kind of arrogant. I'm actually really happy about it. I mean i I wasn't sure how it would hold up, and uh, they had sent me a very early cut before they had any of the sound effects. Um, or anything else and I watched it with some trepidation but I kept thinking this is pretty good I mean the biggest thing I notice are are the kind of beginner's mistakes that I made I mean there's a scene where Data goes into Picard's office and it's sort of he enters and then they talk about stuff that we already know has happened and you know now as a more experienced screenwriter I would have come into that scene much later so that's one place where I was sort of going gosh I wish we could go back into editing it start this scene a little bit later but you know at the time i i was still thinking probably a little more like a novelist um that's the biggest thing i saw that i i wish that i had done differently i mean i actually thought this the added scenes added a lot to it um i i completely agree i it's it's starting to fade in my memory now and i need to go reference my article if i really want to dig into it but i think most of the added scenes for me were uh, excellent character moments, especially as you mentioned earlier in the episode here, uh, especially the scene between Data and Jordy, where Data tries to give Jordy his pipe, and the scene between uh, Riker and P- and Picard, and the extended scene between Data and and Riker at the end of the show uh, was mm-hmm. just it was it was great. It was really great. And the only thing that I really noticed that that felt a little off to me are now the some of the music cues in the extended cut feel a little misplaced now. And I suppose there's not a lot that can be done about that except for rescoring the thing. Which I'm sure they're not going to do. But no. that's a really 
point. I hadn't noticed. I'll have to look at that um, and with and pay attention to that factor. But yeah, you're probably right because they were cued for something much shorter. So. Yeah, and uh, I, I I can't speak with complete certainty because uh, it's been a little while since I seen I saw the episode before I went to see it in the theater, so uh, I can't speak with complete certainty. But I, I it just felt like some of the music cues were just a little out of place and things like that. Uh, so, but yeah, for the most part, that extended cut had a lot of a lot of gems in there. Well, so, thank uh, you. Now I, was, I oh, go, I'm sorry, go ahead. That's all. I was just I'm really glad to have it intact again. Yeah, no, it, it's really fun, especially for me, who's, I, I grew up with Star Trek The Next Generation, I was uh, uh, born in 82 and kind of grew up with it throughout the late 80s and early 90s, so um, it, it's really, it was really fun, it's really fun to see this process now, putting this show into HD, it's just fantastic. Uh, Melinda, there was one other fun question we have in the chat room from Indie Filmmaker, I, I thought it'd be nice to ask you, uh, was there ever discussions amongst the writers to have William Shatner or Leonard Nimoy or DeForest Kelly uh, as a guest appearance on uh, TNG? Um, I, I don't think we would ever even have dared to suggest it. Um, there was a lot of hostility from the top brass uh, against the old show. Hmm. Um, they didn't like the old show particularly. Interesting. You know, that, that's what I had heard. Yeah, yeah. But, but I mean, you know, we did have. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, was it season five when when unification uh, with Leonard Nimoy, uh, and and of course DeForest Kelly did guest in the very very first episode of the the pilot. But right. and and I know they brought Sarek back for an episode that right. was written by the brilliant Peter S. Beagle, um, but uh, the man who wrote the Last Unicorn. Uh, you know, I, there was a real resistance to it, and and. Um, I mean, those of us who worked the show, we were huge Trek fans, and we really wanted to do a return to the piece of the action. Um, <laughs> we, we really wanted to have them go back to the planet where McCoy had left his, I think it was the tricorder or communicator, I can't remember which. Ah, yeah. And everybody's running around wearing Spock ears and uh, acting, you know, doing William Shatner delivery of lines. <laughs> we thought it would have been a really fun kind of lighter episode. Um, but boy, that was like a non-starter <laughs> when we brought it. it was like, no. Um, so, you know, it never even occurred to us to even attempt it because we, we knew it would be shot down. So we didn't bother. Okay, one one last question, um, and this is uh, I, I was uh, digging around when I was setting up your profile on the Movie Byte site so that I can when we when the podcast goes live later I uh, I can add you to that. So, but I was looking around on your Facebook page and saw you mentioning some comments about the new Star Trek. So, uh, this is just a, a a point of conversation. How do you feel about J.J. Abrams' Star Trek? <laughs> Well, now, Rob Burnett will shoot me. He'll hit me over the head. Um, You don't don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. No, it's okay. I I actually enjoyed it to this this degree. I enjoyed the energy of it, and I enjoyed the kind of, uh, I don't know, joyfulness to it. it. It captured the feeling of old Trek for me. I thought the script was a mess. Um, mm-hmm. There were such gigantic plot holes in it that it made me crazy. You could drive a semi truck through them. <laughs> yeah, and and um, you know I kept sitting in the theater with George, who was grumbling the entire time. Going, Rawr. well, George hates retconning, and he considered it retconning. And I didn't mind that, like the timelines have diverged. I was okay with that, but I kept muttering, you know, George would go, and I go, why don't 
those guys, y'all just go on home and like go, hey, there's going to be this big disaster and you're all going to die in 17 years. Um, and it bothered me that that never was addressed. Yeah, so, I, I agree. <laughs> I, you know, it was so, that kind of thing. Now, I have heard that they were forced to shoot the first draft. So, you know, maybe that can excuse it. And um, But I, I, was, I was really thrown by a lot of the the, the sort of plot holes and problems and and the the teleport solution i was like don't do that froofy don't don't go there because if you do that you don't need starships <laughs> you know? exactly well yeah i mean I, and, and who had ever heard of that before and spock was like that's i'm sorry i'm getting really geeky here now but spock was like oh this is this is one that you came up with scotty and i'm sitting here going when did he do that <laughs> exactly did he do that and uh, I, I mean we had the same problem on on the on the show i mean there were some writers who were not huge star trek fans who were wrote an episode where they use the transporter to make uh, Dr. Pulaski young again. Mm-hmm. I kept going to my boss and I was, you know, just a little story editor, but I kept going to Maureen going, don't go there, Froofy. You know, no, don't do that. It's a terrible, terrible thing um, because nobody ever dies. I mean, the whole, it was just like, don't do that. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So have you seen the trailer for the, uh, the, the upcoming Star Trek film? I have not. Um, okay. I was thinking it was time to probably go online and, and take a look at it. Yeah, it, it's live. It's interesting. I mean, and it will be interesting to see. I mean, because I, I, I agree with you, definitely. It's like, why do we have to go and, and, and pretend like everything that happened in the next generation and stuff and blow that whole thing up? Why, why couldn't we just move the Star Trek timeline forward? And why do we have to go back? But, you know, now that it's done, it's done. And now let's just let's see what happens. So it'll be interesting. You know, I admit I'm still, you know, very, very fond of Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. So True. I, you know, I, I that I like. I think that's what I liked. I liked seeing, and I liked seeing um, Kirk kissing a green girl, and you know, <laughs> <laughs> it was like, okay, that's Kirk. That's my guy. <laughs> yeah. Go. Well, Melinda, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was a great pleasure to have you here, and it's really fun to hear some of the stuff that would go on behind the scenes and. Man, I'm telling you what, Measure of a Man is top-notch, and, and I'm really glad that it got made. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Okay. Thank you, Melinda. Uh-huh. Bye. Bye. That was pretty sweet. Well, uh, you know, guys, we have a couple other things up for the rest of the show. Next, TJ and I are going to talk about Killing Them Softly, which is in theaters right now, starring Brad Pitt. And then right after a brief review about Killing Them Softly, we're going to tackle another film in theaters starring Gerard Butler called Playing for Keeps. Now, uh, TJ, you caught Killing Them Softly. I caught both Playing for Keeps and uh, Killing Them Softly. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, I just I just did not have the time. I wanted to, to get to it, but I just I ran out of time this week. So I watched Killing Them Softly, and it sounds like I wished I would have watched the other one because, wow, if you haven't caught my review yet, I was pretty scathing. That was a pretty horrible... <laughs> you were, and justly so. I, I totally agreed with your assessment. You know, it's not often that uh, in 2012 we catch a film with a, with this kind of star power and a uh, popular time for great releases that seems to just really flounder. I, I When I went to see this film, I was expecting something better based alone on just the trailer. Uh, wasn't that your impression too? 
Definitely. And even I, uh, you mentioned when I showed you the draft of my review, uh, my review will be in the show notes, by the way, which are, will be at moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast slash 22. Um, and, and I, I put the trailer in my review at your suggestion because you're like, well, people aren't even going to, because you're being so scathing of this film, you got to show them that it is this film you're talking about. And so I put that trailer at the, at the bottom of the review and, and I watched it again and the trailer really does make it feel like a much better film. Maybe, I mean, maybe not a film I would really, really like, but still it, it looks like so much better of a film. Yeah, I and, think anything that has uh, background theme music from um, yeah, Johnny Cash <laughs> makes it sound a lot better than it may actually be. <laughs> I, I so. suppose. I'm not a big Johnny Cash fan, but I, I could see that. Oh, TJ. Sorry. Come on, have a sorry. Heart. Sorry. Have a, have a masculine heart, TJ. Come on. <laughs> if, I wanted, <laughs> if I wanted a singer who just uh, talks through his songs, uh, I, I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm probably being sacrilegious here. But anyway, <laughs> killing them softly. Um, well, how do you talk about this film? Okay. Well, I think the safe way to go is to just, you know, tell them the storyline. Okay, so uh, three amateurs stick up a mob-protected card game, causing the local criminal economy to collapse. Brad Pitt plays the hitman hired by uh, hired to track them down and restore order. Killing Them Softly also features Richard Jenkins, James Gandolfini, sorry, I didn't practice these names beforehand, Ray Liotta, Scoot McNary, Ben Mendelsohn, and Vincent... <laughs> Curatola. People with names like that aren't allowed to be stars. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Uh, the, okay, so it had a budget of $15 million. So I was, I, when, when I saw that, I was like, okay, that's helpful to know. I mean, at least it was, at least they didn't spend a lot of money making this travesty of a film. Um, but yeah, $15 million, And I say, I, I say not a lot of money. To me, that's a lot of money, but it's not to the studios. Now, I'm actually a little surprised because they had two or three um, fairly decent stars. Um and well, you know the uh, you know the main guy, Mr. Soprano, and mm-hmm. uh, what was his name? The guy that was the leader of the card games. Um, anyway, uh, y- y- and along with Brad Pitt. So th- then there were some pretty heavy special effects shots sprinkled throughout. Um, so yeah, fifteen million of a budget is uh, fairly fairly li- you know what would you call it conservative for a film with the- these kinds of people. Yeah, it definitely. I was expecting it to be to be higher, uh, and uh, so the opening weekend uh, made six million, uh, and uh, wasn't you know wasn't that great. But then now domestically, it's made twelve million, and uh, worldwide, it's made twenty eight million. So it's gone above and beyond its budget. So I guess it's not a flop. I wish it were because it's so horrible. Um, Joseph, why don't you? I mean, I, my review's already out there on MovieByte, and I'll talk about it a little bit. But you can go see that moviebyte.com if you want to see my review. But Joseph, tell us a little bit what you, how you feel about the film. Well, killing them softly, if I had to sum it up, was uh, just a disappointment from the very first scene. I think that the writers were too ambitious to try and sell us on a uh, plot that was um, too clever for its undoing. You know, it's um, it introduces. Uh, just at the get-go, we have these uh, n- uh, no-name lowlifes that are, um, you know, very self-centered characters. They they're, they're the bottom of the barrel as people, and uh, you know what? The, you can make some good stories with characters like these, but setting this up for a bigger crime mob story, these guys are just out to uh, rob the mob, and so they they're. Their di- it's a very dialogue dialogues heavy movie, right? And all the dialogue is just riddled with poor writing from beginning beginning to end. These guys are just 
carrying on about the the dullest things, the grossest things, the uh, <laughs> the saddest things, and they plot their they plot their robberies. They then they go and they find a little bit of success, but then they blow their success so easily. Um, and then the rest of the film, what would you just say? It's kind of awkwardly paced. I would say it drags for the most part. Um, someone, Michael Minkoff, who we're going to have in a little bit on the show here, he mentioned in the chat room, it was uh, kind of like an indie Ocean's Eleven. I wouldn't say that it's quite that <laughs> it's not even the same ballpark. Let's just say Ocean's Eleven is in a uh, you know a primary uh, professional league stadium, and this is in a sandlot. Uh, this is a <laughs> this is a pathetic a pathetic excuse for a film. So um, star power um, notwithstanding, I think that this film just has no excuse for coming out at this time of year to trick people into believing it's going to be something worth seeing. Well, and you know, ultimately, it's it's about okay. It, it, you know, if, if hopefully you won't care about spoilers because we're telling it so bad, but this could be spoilery. Um, it's about guys who go and steal from a card game from the mob, and then Brad Pitt comes in and takes them all out. That's what the movie's about. And and it's just like, why is that a compelling plot? It's not, <laughs> and I, I don't think that they they're even trying to kid themselves. I, I don't know. It just seems like. I think a film like this is inspired by a lot of television like uh, the uh, HBO's Sopranos. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying what I think about the Sopranos here. We're talking about killing them softly. If um, if I had to give an assessment of the Sopranos, I think it's an anomaly. It's very difficult to pull something off like that those crime stories and to appeal to mass audiences. Um, I think HBO kind of got lucky. They had the right... Uh, cast at the right time with the right storytellers. They had the right screenwriters. And uh, this film assumes that people will want that kind of story from what feels like amateur filmmakers or filmmakers producing a movie on their off day. It it Uh, felt very amateurish. Yeah. Definitely. So, killing them softly, I think that they were you know, killing the audience brutally. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what I titled my review. Killing them softly nearly killed me. <laughs> oh, oh, right. I was being a little clever there, but uh, and not not all that clever, but you know, a little bit. Um, I will say that uh, the only thing that might possibly be a little bit redeeming about this film, and I don't mean re- I, I'm just using redeeming as in I didn't. Anyway, it, Brad Pitt kind of almost, he couldn't quite do it, but he, he made it like, oh, good, finally, somebody who can act is on the screen, and, and somebody who's interesting a little bit. Uh, but, but even he couldn't, I mean, it was just, so what? You know, the, still, the plot was just not worthy of, uh, of being on the screen. So, um, that's, that's all I have to say about it. Uh, it, it was, oh, and, and uh, especially for our audience might be interested, it was, it was a filthy, dirty, nasty film. <laughs> yeah. As far as the films that we have seen, this is the grossest of 2012 by far. Oh, by a long shot. Leaps and bounds. And I wasn't, I don't know, for some reason I wasn't expecting that. Now, TJ, you know what? We've never actually reviewed a film quite as low as this one. So do you want to explain your star rating? I thought I had. Basically, I I think I've rated one other, and I don't remember what it is or I've taught my head. I think I've rated one other film a half a star before. I don't remember what it is, but my 
this is a film that I will actively, proactively avoid at all costs forever and and will tell you I don't want to watch it, would probably leave the room, don't ever want to see it again. Ah, Benjamin Johnson in the chat room says it was Cloud Atlas that I gave half a star, and I uh, I stand by that. It's In different ways, it's just as horrible as this one. Uh, and, that, you know, again, the one thing you should understand about Movie Byte, maybe I should put this on a, an About page or something somewhere, but uh, these star ratings are solely the opinion of the person reviewing the film. Like, if Corey reviews a film, that's, you know, and he gives... Uh, what film? Uh, the Amazing Spider-Man, however many stars it was he gave it, which is way more than I would have given it. That's his personal rating, and that, you know, so that's kind of how that works. And I'm, so I'm not saying that I, I could, I, with Cloud Atlas, it's interesting, maybe I should have given it a little higher rating, cause, because I could see where somebody might like it. I don't see how anybody could, I, I don't see, see how, how it's more deserving of stars than this film is. You, you what now? I can see how Cloud Atlas is deserving of more stars than this one is. Right, which is why maybe I'm thinking I should rethink that on Cloud Atlas, <laughs> because this is like a <laughs> yeah. new low. I, Cloud Atlas was the worst film in my book of 2012 until this one. This one is by far and away much worse. It's like <laughs> I wish I could go lower on my rating. but yeah. uh, So I, I don't want to take up too much time with well, this, because that's all I have uh, yeah. to say. And on, on that note about the star ratings, um, I, I hate to to ever ever get so close to the bottom of the barrel and um but maybe tj i have seen a few more extreme cases of terrible terrible films than you have because um playing for keeps i mean or or, uh killing them softly is is pretty bad but it's it's by far not one of the worst films i mean there's some pretty dark corners of the 80s for films and this is true and 90s and 70s so (laughs) i don't know i've seen a few real bombs and you know uh killing them softly yeah it's pretty bad but thankfully it's a a bomb for our generation it's not quite the equivalent of a bomb for all generations i would say does that make any sense i I just feel like yes this film did stink but um thankfully the visuals at times the special effects and the performance of brad pitt uh made it sufferable so Mm. i I would just say that i'd give it 1.5 out of five stars and i but i think that you're totally valid in your standpoint that it's deserving less yeah i uh and you you changed it joseph but in in our uh google docs outline i i put because we usually have our bullet points likes and dislikes and i i made the dislikes like 24 point or something just big red 24 point font you shrunk it back down but that was i was like all dislikes and i crossed out likes because i didn't have any (laughs) yeah Uh, now um well i guess we've kind of wrapped that one up yeah you want to talk about playing for keeps yeah so why why'd you bail out on me man you were supposed to catch this one with me i told you it wasn't by it wasn't by choice i just i've uh here's the Uh, thing Um, you squirrel I, I've uh, technically I'm uh, an employee of Liberty Alliance who owns Movie Byte, and uh, I, I get a little money for that, but not a lot. And so I have uh, what a lot of people might call a day job, uh, <laughs> and uh, it's not really a day job because I'm self-employed and I do a lot of work for a lot of different people, and I have deadlines and things, and I'm just I'm I am completely maxed out right now. So that is why, unfortunately, I just didn't have time to see Playing for Keeps. I am so sorry. You weren't at home watching Star Trek instead. <laughs> no, of course, <clears throat> of course not. <clears throat> okay, okay. Well, playing for keeps then. Um, this film, uh, I'll just go ahead and dive into the storyline because there's no, the the name in and of itself doesn't really describe it. 
Uh, Playing for Keeps is a romantic comedy about a... Okay, let me preface this. This story synopsis comes straight from the studio, so they're going to wax eloquent to me about how great their (laughs) film is. Uh, Playing for Keeps is a romantic comedy about a charming, down-on-his-luck former soccer star played by Gerard Butler, who returns to his home city to put his life back together. Looking for a way to rebuild his relationship with his son, he gets roped into coaching the boys' soccer team. But his attempts to finally become an adult, quote, air quote, you know, adult, are met with hilarious challenges from the attractive soccer moms who pursue him at every turn. Bound and determined to win his son's favor, George has to... I, I'm, I'm ignoring the chat room while you laugh, dude. I'm laughing at you and George, the chat room. Go, go right ahead. Oh, okay. You want me to George mute me myself? George has to ask himself... George has to ask himself whether he, his career and personal life are worth losing his son for a second time. Playing for Keeps also stars Jessica Biel, Uma Thurman, Catherine Zeta-Jones, and Dennis Quaid. All right. Well, TJ, I am so sorry that you missed this film because I would love to hear you lambast it. Um, Playing for Keeps was... uh, it was had a mediocre trailer let's just be honest okay but gerard butler he's got some hits and misses and i kind of like him though i i want to see him uh do do something really awesome i don't i don't think he's done it yet um but i appreciate having some more uh scottish talent in movies these days and i just think that he hasn't found his right role hopefully he doesn't go by the wayside like somebody like uh say um, you know, uh, what was his name? Russell Crowe, you know, uh, I mean, he's, he's not Scottish. I'm just saying, I think that Gerard Butler fits the same bill as Russell Crowe in most films, right? Russell Crowe that just seems to be a slightly older version of Gerard Butler. And so perhaps Gerard can pull it together in another film another day because playing for keeps, it was kind of all over the place. Um, cinematography was sometimes good, sometimes weird, kind of lame. Very cliche romantic comedy. But thankfully, uh, one of the best qualities about this one was that it was uh, centered around a guy rather than a woman. And uh, I can respect a good film uh, uh, you know, regarding a woman, say like um, Sweet Home Alabama or... Uh, Okay, as far as chick flicks are concerned, I'm just referencing Sweet Home Alabama. I'm not saying I'm a huge fan of it or anything. Oh, come on. That's a great film. It's it's just fine, right? It's just fine. It's okay to watch with your wife, you know, if she's into that sort of thing. Wait, wait, wait. So, uh, all right, all right. We'll talk about Sweet Home Alabama (laughs) some other time. That's a great film, Joe. Uh, Are you pulling my leg? No. I, okay. Admittedly, it's been uh, five or six years since I've seen it. Uh, when did it come out? But um, it's been a while since I've seen it anyway. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to derail you. No, no, you're not. Um, the thing is, playing for keeps just seems like it's a washed up uh, script that they gave a lot of effort to make it work and it doesn't. The actors try to sell a, a mediocre script. And most of the time, their performances shine. And then for the script, for the direction, for um, making sense of the story and appreciating the logic behind the story, it's just kind of like it's lackadaisical for good storytelling. For instance, there's a, there's this very key moment where uh, this soccer coach, 
played by Girardi. You know, his name is George, and George is trying so desperately to get back with his wife, his uh, his ex-wife again. He wants to patch things up with his family, and he's trying to make good by being the good soccer coach. He's also trying to land a steady job, and you know what? It's kind of like I don't really care at this point whether or not he gets anything that he wants, and that's a crying shame, right? By this time, well into Act Two, you want to if if a film was doing its job right, you'd care about uh, his plight. But through the course of some unfortunate events, he is set up, and it looks like he had an affair with another woman. His wife conveniently happens across photos that would implicate him for being in this affair and the thing is there's no validity to it but george when confronted by his wife doesn't make any effort to tell her that it didn't happen that it never happened that there was no validity to it so he just leads her to believe ah oh, I, I i can't convince you otherwise so i just won't try and uh and she assumes the worst about him, so things go downhill from there. But he was like, really? It's, it wasn't a realistic scene at all. And it was just a contrivance of the film to try and turn the film in the direction that they needed the story to go to set it up for a bigger payoff come the climax. And uh, that is that kind of thing that happened a couple of times. It just, it, they, were, they were cheap uh, tricks going on in the storyline and... Uh, I'm no fool, so I picked up on it pretty quickly. And uh, TJ, um, I guess I'm ultimately happy that you were spared. Good for you. I don't know. It sounds like I, frankly, I'd rather see this, as horrible as it may be, than, <laughs> than uh, what was that forgettable <laughs> film we just talked about? <laughs> Killing them softly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I. maybe the writers behind these two films had something in common. Maybe they knew each other. <laughs> Maybe yeah, it was Mike, a hu- Michael, husband and wife do Michael Minkoff in the chat room says this sounds like classic bad writing relying on plot rather than character. How do you feel about that statement? Uh, I would have to agree, but even so, I think that what the women are going to take away are the performances from these characters. And this film was obviously designed to attract um, women as a chick flick. And you're watching this because this is Gerard Butler. Come on, you know? And uh, maybe there's somebody out there who likes Dennis Quaid. But, you know, <laughs> the guys there are watching the movie because, hey, you know, Gerard Butler, he's he's a man's man, right? But then there's also pretty faces like Catherine Zeta-Jones. And um, I'm sorry, they, 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 the premise of their characters was halfway decent. And then, <laughs> yes, the plot just kills it. But even so, um, I would say... The film is tolerable to watch simply because at times the actors did a decent job. So with that in mind, I'm not going to be as brutal in the star rating as I might be. And I'm giving it 1.5 out of five stars. Why? It sounds like you didn't like it. Why are you rating it that highly? Because like I'm saying, this film was a beautiful film. And it was fairly decently performed, even if the plot was just didn't have it together. Okay. I could see I could see a remake of this film in twenty years and it being pretty decent. So I mean, for what so it's worth, you're saying the potential was there and they kind of blew yes, it. yes, and I I appreciated the potential. So um, that being said, that is playing for keeps. And uh, oh yeah, I guess we might should highlight a few other things. It came out on December seventh, a budget of thirty five million, which is 
okay, with that in mind, I'm sorry, but this doesn't deserve any star power at all. <laughs> um, then opening weekend, it made five million seven hundred fifty thousand um, box office domestic of six million seven hundred forty five thousand. That's actually the worldwide box office too. So. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, it's just now. Now, here's here's what uh, I found interesting. Rotten Tomatoes. The critics gave it only three percent of critics liked it. <laughs> Not very many people liked it. Uh, I, Not very many I critics, was, I should say. I, I think that's a valid standpoint too. It, yeah, I, I wouldn't say it was lesser than Killing Them Softly, though. It's come on, seriously. It seems that the critics are all over the place when it comes to their ratings because because they gave it, uh, Killing Them Softly a seventy six out of a hundred. So that's that's ridiculous. All right, are you done? Yeah, yeah, I'm satisfied. Let's with what let's I had get to Michael say. on this podcast now. Um, he's got a he's he's actually in the chat room and listening live, but there is a about a seven or eight second lag, so he's just now finding out we're about to call him. Uh, TJ, while you're trying to connect Michael, I'll go ahead and introduce him. Um, good friends listening to our podcast. Michael is one of my very dear friends, and he works here at the same offices that I do. Michael did a couple of episodes with me for Movieology back in the day when we were producing that for another company. That was back in 2011. And so I, for an, a long time, have wanted Michael to be more a part of these movie reviews, and I'm glad to have him on the show. And we're excited to announce that Michael's going to be a part of Another podcast that is going to be a special little feature at moviebyte.com called yeah. Movieology for yeah. very engrossing, in-depth reviews of films, because we're, Michael is especially good at that. We're reviving an old brand. So here, here, here's Michael. How are you doing, Michael? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. Can you hear me? I can hear yes, you. Yes, you sound great. Awesome. Now, you know, just so you know, you're using the same mic I am. If you want a really good, clean sound there, Michael, just get very close to the mic. I'm pretty close. I'm comfortably okay, close. You sound right. pretty sound pretty roomy, but we can live with it. Okay, here. How about that? Is that better or worse? Uh, can't tell a difference. Uh, about the and, same. Well, go and, ahead, Michael. TJ. That, that's all right. I mean, our, uh, the only the only other question I'll ask, then we'll just move on because it sounds good enough. But it, did you check your Skype preferences to see which device it's set to use? Nope. There's a good possibility you're set to then use your default, which it might be your computer itself. Um, you yeah, bug, bug yeah, that's what it's doing here. How about that? Oh, much better. Oh, much wow! Better. All right, you're sweet. in the same room with us now. I know. There we fun. go. All right, so um, Joseph, you have in the show outline. How do we know Michael? And I've only met you, Michael, once or twice. As I, I think probably both times that I've been at the Liberty Alliance headquarters. But Joseph has a much uh, longer relationship with you. Yes. Now, Michael, uh, you produced. Or I'm, I'm sorry, you actually. Well, I guess I'd, I would dare say you were a co-producer. You wrote a couple of scripts for us at Movieology, and then you were also hosting those episodes um, naturally. Um, now, the, that is the reason why we wanted to bring you into the fold for Movie Byte, because I really thought your material was exceptional. And a lot of the people, the fans of Movieology, who have um, cross-pollinated over here to movie bite really miss you and miss the in-depth discussions that we used to have for movieology how would you describe what we tried to do at movieology because i think with our newer audience members they may not appreciate exactly what we're kind of introducing to them but i expect them to like it a great deal once they get the hang of it well i think a lot of it had to do with uh looking at movies with an eye for uh the philosophical and uh theological content 
um, that was there. Obviously, some movies like romantic comedies, for instance, don't really uh, usually have as much of a capacity for that kind of um, in-depth analysis. Um, they're usually created more along the lines of entertainment. And my opinion was always that even if a movie is entertaining, that doesn't mean it uh, doesn't mean something. Um, oh, thanks, man. Joe just brought me some water. Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> just, I, like, didn't even, I didn't even know he was stepped away from his mic. <laughs> Oh no! I just uh, I just revealed the uh, fourth wall or whatever. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So um, so with movieology, our our desire was to give people, especially uh, Christians, a little more to think about as far as what movies were saying, both good and bad. And um, so I thought we did a pretty good job of it, but um, they're just. There's not really a whole lot of critical analysis of movies from a Christian perspective. A lot of Christians seem to focus more on external and superficial issues um, that aren't necessarily unimportant. Um, yeah, double negative, figure that one out. Uh, <laughs> but uh, they are, um, they're not central, I don't think. You know, we look at ratings, and there are a lot of people who, you know, and it's pretty good general rule of thumb that if a movie has a ton of nudity and a ton of language and a ton of whatever else, that it's probably not worth watching. Sure, yeah. Um, but it's actually not because of those things, usually, that it's not worth watching. It's usually because the film itself is bankrupt um, morally, you know, and those are just symptoms of a moral bankruptcy. But there are films that I think, even though they have gotten an R rating for language or for violence, and, uh, you know, that I think are still worth watching um, because of the fact that they, I don't know, accurate depiction of, uh, of reality or of some philosophical concept, whatever. You know, not that you should be filling your minds with those things, but there are a lot of very dark and disturbing, doubt-producing things in the scriptures. And I think that the church in general has avoided them. And, um, you know, you're not going to hear, you know, dash their babies into the rocks and, you know, blessed is the one and all that kind of stuff from the Psalms uh, at most church services preached <laughs> right. on or sung. Um, but there's a lot of really dark and messed up stuff. Um, I, I don't mean messed up that it's actually messed up, but in most people's minds, they would say it's not cheery, it's not uplifting, it's not inspiring, whatever kind of stuff. And Christians in general have kind of just fallen uh I think too much on that side and I've lost out on a lot of the depth um, that's in the scriptures um, because we just don't really discuss everything that goes on in reality and, and that's to our detriment uh, and it's al- it also affects our witness I think because uh, a lot of non-Christians will criticize uh, us uh, for not being real about stuff and there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the world that's not necessarily pretty but that still needs to be discussed that still needs to be um um grappled with mm-hmm. so anyway so yeah. so what you're saying yeah. is movieology is very much going to be a podcast geared toward in-depth christian analysis much more so i mean we we touch on it sometimes once in a while here on the movie bite podcast but movieology is going to be a lot more geared toward that Right, yeah, definitely. We're we're the next one we're gonna do. We just watched Life of Pi, uh, I guess that was yesterday, and uh, that movie is very v- very interesting. And I'm reading the book right now. I should be finished by the time we do the uh, 
by the time we do the podcast. But uh, yeah, Eric and I are just going to get together and we'll probably uh, drink some uh, grape juice. And uh, then, uh, <laughs> and then uh, after that, we, um, um, or during that probably, we'll, we'll talk a little bit uh, about the movie. There are a few things that I'm curious about uh, in the movie and uh, that I'm still thinking about a little bit. Um, but one of the major issues that I think needs to be discussed is the difference between pluralism and relativism which i talked to you about before yeah yeah the movie the movie tended it seemed like to fall in, more in learn in um in line with relativism rather than pluralism but i think that the book is a lot more of a pluralistic book anyway there's there's a fine distinction between those two things uh it has a lot to do with tone um i thought that the tone of the book was a lot more uh pleasant actually than the tone of the movie um a lot more uh, inviting. There was a modesty to the book that I don't think the movie really captured. Um, but anyway, that's well, for this, this has that. been an interesting podcast. You know, we I don't know if you caught the first part of the episode. I heard you were stuck in traffic or whatever. But um, we had on Melinda Snodgrass, wonderful, wrote a wonderful uh, Star Trek episode. Uh, but Star Trek is often known for its uh, atheistic, humanistic. Uh, worldview or whatever and uh so now now we're talking about movieology and it's very christian focused so it's been a very interesting podcast a very interesting yeah. episode <laughs> i only heard the last bit of her she she seemed like she was very interesting though and she seemed really eager to talk which is always cool yes no i i wasn't sure i i just contacted her on twitter and it and was like uh Hey, could you know? Would you be interested in being on the podcast? Love to talk to you because I had seen, as I mentioned earlier, the Measure of a Man in theater, uh, the first episode she wrote for Star Trek, and she finally responded. She said, "Oh, I'd love to." So I was thrilled. So it was fun to have her. But uh, anyway, yeah, you should uh, you should listen to the uh, podcast when it comes out. Then, if you didn't catch the first part, uh, it was a lot of fun. All right, uh, Joseph, what do you got next on the agenda here for us? Well, uh, Michael, you know, uh, I don't know if you're looking at the outline, but we have. I, I, I never got the there. outline. I got you a link there in uh, the Skype uh, text chat. So oh. uh, what we're looking at really next year is um, I, I, I've been looking at our schedule for episodes of Movie Byte from now through the end of January. And as it is, we've lined up pretty much every episode for some feature discussion about a popular film or a, a major review of a, of a current film coming out. And we'd kind of like to just touch upon a little reflection of 2012 and those films that really stuck out to us, those that we really liked, you know, our personal favorites. And uh, in hindsight is, uh, you know, 2012. Uh, TJ, I guess I'll let you go first. Ha, ha, ha. Hindsight 2012. I get it. Uh, I think I'm going to be sick. (laughs) (laughs) I had to take advantage of that opportunity. Okay, so TJ, uh, what do you think? Uh, what stuck out to you? What is one of your f- personal favorites? And maybe, I mean, grant you, like we've discussed before, I, I categorize my personal favorites a little bit differently from those films that I think just deserve a good star rating. Uh, what would you say really stands out to you in terms of favorites? And what are those, uh, maybe a, 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 a film do you think is deserving of some critical acclaim? Okay, let me think about it for a minute. I'm um, Avengers. <laughs> okay, so you're saying Avengers for both categories, critical acclaim and personal favorite? Uh, well, it's my personal favorite. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I was looking, and I didn't get around to posting it. I was looking at the uh, some film institute or other, uh, the, their top list or whatever, and Avengers didn't make it. But, I, you know, there's so much to like there. And I, I guess I can see how you might not feel like that film was artistic or something, but... 
man, I feel like Joss Whedon always gets the short end of the stick, and he hasn't really this time. I mean, this film's done really well, but at the same time, it's like, why, why isn't the why isn't Avengers on this list? That was a big film, and and certainly my personal favorite so far this year. Mm, yeah, but, and, you know, but okay, so, but seriously, you're going to say this is the film your favorite and critically, you know, claimed worthy that I, know, I don't know. See, you're going to have the, you're going to have this one when it comes out. I know. Uh, I guess it's already out on home entertainment. And you already I, got I, a, your copy I did with get all it, the yes. special features. Yes, I did. And I've, I've watched most of the special features and, uh, I, I don't know how to measure critical acclaim or whatever, but it's certainly my personal favorite. Let's say that. And I, you know, think everybody should watch it. <laughs> okay. Well, hey, TJ, I have two questions for you. Actually, I want you to share the same. I don't know how many films you've seen in theaters this year, but just be honest, whatever films you've actually seen from 2012. And uh, while you're at it, too, there was another question I had for you I meant to ask you earlier. Uh, what genre of films can you not live without? Because I think that that can shed some light as to what kind of films you especially appreciate. You asking me or Michael? I'm sorry. I am addressing this to Michael. I thought oh, you were, but you said sorry. my name. <laughs> uh, sorry just, about that, TJ. I just zoned out. I was looking at the film in 2012 <laughs> because when you were asking that to DJ, I was like, man, I didn't like anything this year. Oh, come uh, on. <laughs> oh, wait, sorry. Twilight Saga. No, no, not so much. <laughs> not so much. I'm, I'm looking at the top 10 grossing films here, and you've got Avengers, which was pretty good, but I mean, it's a it's an action flick. I mean, that doesn't do much for me. Okay. Dark Knight Rises, which was okay, but it didn't, it, it, it didn't do a whole lot, especially compared to uh, Dark Knight. Uh, Skyfall, which is, you know, a typical kind of Bond movie. Yeah. I watched it with my dad, whatever. You know, Ice Age, I didn't watch it. Twilight Saga, did did watch it with my wife. Yep, uh, whatever. Uh, Amazing Spider-Man, no. no. Madagascar 3, no. Hunger Games, no. Hunger Games oh, is a terrible on. film. No, terrible no, film. no. It was a well, terrible film. You and I film. shall disagree. Okay, shaky cam. That's all I'm going to say. Okay, I okay do, moving I, on okay, to Men okay, in Black I, 3. I, I do agree with you uh, there. No. I just have to say. Brave, <laughs> no, Brave is the worst Pixar film ever. Um, okay, so, yeah. I, I, I mean, okay, first off, I read all the Hunger Games books, and I thought they did a pathetic job of transferring that book to a movie. Um, it was as if the screenwriters started very ambitiously to try and include a lot of things in the beginning of that film that he thought were important, and then at some point the producers came in and said, oh yeah, this is a two-hour film, not a seven-hour film. And so then he just started compressing <laughs> stuff in the middle and end. The, the the pacing on that movie is terrible. The direction is bad. The the people that they got, uh, the, the casting was bad. You know, uh, Hamish or whatever that guy's name is. Hamish. Yeah, Hamage. Um, Woody Harrelson, I love Woody Harrelson, but he was not the right choice for that guy. That guy was a brute. Um, <laughs> secondly, you know, the, the female actress, I, can't, I don't even know her name, uh, but for Jennifer, Katniss. Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah, she was okay. I thought okay. she was fantastic. She was okay. I agree with you on that. But uh, for uh, PETA, not so much. I agree. I, okay, that's the first thing you said that I really agree with. I, I didn't think Peter was the right casting choice. But that he said, looked like a dope. I I enjoyed the film I mean, he a lot. Looked like and, a doofus. I certainly enjoyed the first book the most. The the last book was probably my least favorite. Um, but I, I thought the books were great. And and yeah. yes, I I I was disappointed with the cinematography. But that was really my only complaint with the film. Other you were than that, happy I, with the pacing. I'm sorry. Go ahead. You thought the pacing was good. Uh... Well, okay, 
pacing is somewhat determined by camera work, and in the beginning of the film, I felt like the pacing was a little thrown off by the shaky cam that wasn't motivated by anything. Now, later in the film, as the Hunger Games got going, I felt like the camera work was more motivated by what was going on, but I felt like we should have been establishing the film better with more solid shots in the beginning. Well, I'm just talking as far as storytelling pacing. It felt like the beginning of the film was more expanded, and then near the middle and end of the film, it was like they were rushing to finish the story. I, I, see, uh, I, didn't, I didn't feel that way. We'll watch it again. Now you won't be able to get it out of your head. I've watched it three times. Dang it! <laughs> well, now watch it again. You want to? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, because no. I've heard the criticism before, so I don't think it's going to okay. change my view of the film. You know, and, and, and we have to realize, too, uh, I'm not, I try to make note of this once in a while because I am very opinionated on films. Obviously, sure. I'm doing a podcast on films. But right. um, I, I, I do try to note once in a while that it's a very subjective thing. You know, uh, there, there are certainly objective things that we can all observe. But then, you know, even if we, have, we observe the same objective thing, we might have a different opinion about that objective thing. You're, you're so. right. But there's also the case that there are people who are more qualified to give uh, an opinion, or at least that their opinion maybe should hold a little more weight. Not no, that I it agree. isn't still subjective, but and I'm not saying that I'm one of those people because I'm not. <laughs> I'm saying you may be one of those people. I uh, don't know. I, I'm trying so to be. <laughs> I'm willing to give the benefit of doubt. I only saw Hunger Games once in the fil- in the movie theater, so I will watch it again, and I will I will I will give it another chance. Well, and, and I will admit, too, there, there are things that I don't like about The Hunger Games, and I, I reviewed the film uh, in an article on, or in a review on Movie Byte, and we talked about it in a podcast, and there are certainly, I have my complaints about it, and it's it's been, uh, you know, what's it been? I, I think I saw it last when it actually came out for release uh, on home entertainment, so I can't, I can't speak to it freshly, but I, I know there were some things that I wasn't all that happy with, and yet it certainly was a lot better film to me than a lot of other things that I've seen this year. Yeah, but that's like I'm saying. That's like nothing. That's, that's Michael, not saying a whole you, lot. Michael, did you catch Looper? No, I didn't see it. That I was a pretty fun it. film. Yeah my my wife is was friends with Joseph Gordon Levitt. They like went to the same high school in Van Nuys. So fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Well, okay. now, Michael, the, there was the other question. Have Have you got to the other question there, Michael? Uh, what kind of genre could you just not live without? I I still can't see the 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 Oh, there's there's not name. much left on it. It's fine. Okay, good. The, the question no, is, what, what, what genre, genre of- could I not live without? Yeah. Uh, and the reason right. I phrase the re- there's a reason I phrase it like this because there's a lot of people who have a hard time determining what their personal favorite genre is, and uh, I think that that is a bit unfair because if you suggest that you know westerns are your favorite genre, it's not like you can you know you know get rid of all the others. But yeah. you know, but it, but if you were forced, right? If if you if you if someone said, "Sorry, Michael, no more genres for you except one," what would that be? Oh man, I think it's a See, pretty I'd, revealing uh, question. I just have to go die. I mean, I, there's several genres I can't <laughs> live without. I just have to. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't die. But uh, yeah, I, I'm not really sure because I'm not. I'm not a huge fan of any particular genre. I'm more of a fan of particular people in genres. So even with right. music, if you were to ask me what my favorite genre is, I couldn't tell you. But I could tell you a lot of people in different genres that I cared to follow. You I, know that I, I, know, that I know exactly I what you mean to. too because like if somebody were to ask me what's your favorite music genre oh psh, I have several I don't know well, what, yeah. what, what's one of your favorite artists and maybe I, I mention Evanescence that. what's that right I, and I could answer those questions yeah yeah but but maybe I answer Evanescence 
well, they're rock, but that doesn't mean I like a lot of rock. You know, I like Evanescence. Right, and that's why the like the iTunes recommended for you kind of stuff never works for me because I'm like, either. yeah, I understand how that sounds like that, but I don't. This other stuff doesn't have this particular quality that I'm looking for, and it may not be the rock quality that that that's attracting me to this other thing. But yeah, with genres too, it's the same way. Um, but I mean. Just to cover a lot of bases, I guess drama. How about that one? There you go. That's not bad. <laughs> that pretty much covers yeah. a lot. So uh, well, I think that is the safe answer to take. That would be mine personally. Yeah, because yeah. I was going to say like sci-fi fantasy, but uh, drama sounds better to me because you know I, I like I action, and I like sci-fi yeah. and fantasy, but drama sounds better to me. So let's do that. Well, and also you could start categorizing certain sci-fi action films as drama, just because right. you wanted to keep them, you know. Sure. Well, like, it's true. The Dark, you can the Dark Knight drama. trilogy is drama. Sure. <laughs> well, let's not get carried away, but no, it is though. Drama can it's, be it's about as close as you can come to just saying movies. I like the genre of movies. <laughs> I, I, I yeah, yeah. There you go. That's a hard one, Joseph. You should have come up with better things to talk about for us and, and Michael. <laughs> well, it was it was it was short term, so you know, like he didn't have a lot lot of time to prepare. Yeah, yeah. yeah I guess it's entertaining well, it anyway. The, it is the trick question to ask anyone. So it's a it, you gave us the smart answer, Michael. That's exactly the kind of answer we can expect from Michael when it comes to movieology questions. Yeah, and see, I would not have thought of that. So that was good. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, that's the thing. If I had asked somebody else, I'd have gotten a very simple answer and uh i could appreciate michael's uh clarity and in-depth analysis of the question alone and evasion <laughs> of the, answering the question yeah so i didn't, I'm, I didn't I'm ex- evade <laughs> i'm excited to uh see what you guys are going to do with movie bite uh i'm sorry movieology i do movie bite uh because <laughs> uh, that you know i i didn't like I, I can't remember when I discovered the movieology stuff, and it was never in a form like like because I'm a big podcast user, and that stuff automatically comes in. But you know, this was on YouTube or on the site, and I'd have to go check it. And so sometimes I forget to check it or whatever. But I was a big fan of what you guys were doing, which is why I, you know, uh, started uh, why I started talking to Joseph about doing this podcast once movieology ended. So I'm excited to see the brand being rebooted in this way. It's really exciting. We have a question in the chat room: When will movieology be starting? And that is a question I wanted to know too. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. Well, so, Michael, it's really up to you now, uh, you and uh, your co-host now to nail down the date. Have you done that? Mm, well, we saw Life of Pilot yesterday. That was an important first uh That was the, thing, yes, ba- the baby step. Check off. <laughs> I, I think that we're sometime probably going week, to get probably. together. Yeah, probably sometime next week. We and plan we'll on the, doing it here and... Yeah, we'll have, have the episode yeah. uh, ready and available within 24 hours after it's recorded. But yeah, um, yeah, definitely. I imagine sometimes next week, and and uh, yeah, I'll I'll make it happen. I'm going to read Life of Pi over the weekend for sure, and or finish it. I'm already halfway through. That book is really good, by the way. Um, as far as just how it's it's extremely well written, um, mm. but. And I would expect it to be so, based on the material in the film alone. It's far superior to most films. And that, that, that film went through like two hundred different rewrites as well. No way. Yeah. Man. Interesting. When did they start? A few years ago, I meant, uh, imagine. <laughs> yeah, and um, I don't even know if uh, Jan Martel had anything to do with this the screenwriting, but apparently Ang Lee was not happy with the original screenplay and tweaked and tweaked and tweaked it and they did uh, I, he said there were like 200 versions of the of the screenplay 
Um, and I thought they did a, a, a look. I mean, it's a hard thing to to adapt a book, period. But to an ad, adapt a book like that, I mean, you got to read that book. And you're, I, I was really impressed that they were even able to do anything with it as far yeah. as putting a screenplay together because that that book is not even a conventional book you know yeah. uh, as it is so well you're bringing up an excellent point michael which uh segues into my own analysis of 2012 films i guess i'll just dive right in here mm-hmm. do it um yeah here's the thing is that uh, like i said uh, uh you know i kind of like to evaluate my critical acclaim films apart from my personal favorite films so we're going to get a little contrast here you know michael i kind of agree with you that uh the 2012 was not a great year for films thus far uh and you know there's a few films that may uh change that between <clears throat> now <Lame> and christmas <clears throat> lord of the rings um, <clears throat> Hobbit. yeah yeah uh not jack reacher and and so uh, what I'm thinking is, is that, you know, just looking at 2012 to date, I'm going to say that if I had to pick from the lot, my favorite, personal favorite, though I wouldn't say, you know, it's for everyone, it's got to be Wreck-It Ralph. Mm, and, that was a great and, film, too. That and, was, I agree. And as far I as forgot critical, about that one. Yeah, and as far as critical acclaim films are concerned, I almost want to say that Wreck-It Ralph should be considered in the top three, but that's probably a bit too flowery um i I probably would have to be fair and say as far as critical claim is concerned i really like the writing on life of pi so i i would give that my critical acclaim award okay um so that's me well it's doing pretty well with the critics right now i kind of expected that though all right. Well, I guess we should uh, wrap this thing up. We've been recording for about an hour and uh, 17 minutes. So we should probably wrap it up. You have anything else you want to talk about, Joseph? Uh, no, TJ. This wraps it up. Michael, thanks a million for coming onto the show and really looking forward to all things movieology again. Yeah, definitely. I'm looking forward to it too. Thanks, man. All right. Thanks, thanks Michael. So next week, we're going to be talking about The Hobbit with, uh, I don't know how you say his last name, Marcus... Pittman. Pittman. Okay, it is. It's just like it looks. Marcus Pittman and Clark Douglas is going to be joining us again on the podcast. He filled in for Joseph uh, several weeks ago now uh, when Joseph was off playing or watching movies or something or other. I can't remember what it was you were doing, Joseph, but uh, (laughs) playing hooky. I was probably watching a movie at home. Ah yes, <laughs> so we're gonna we're I'm, I'm looking forward to that as as much as I've been a little, uh, some some of the stuff that's come you know about the Hobbit has been a little off putting to me. At the same time, it's hard for me not to get excited about it. A big Lord of the Rings fan, so um, yeah, we'll see how it goes. And I'm really looking forward to seeing the Star Trek trailer in the theater and uh, the Superman trailer in the theater. That's gonna be fun. So uh, yeah, and the Hobbit. So we're gonna talk about the Hobbit next week. All right, TJ. Well, uh, where can they find you on the internets? On the internet, you can find me at buzzingpixelcreative.com. If you want to hire me to work on your website or edit a film, whatever you want to hire me to do in that kind of thing, that's that's where you'll find me. You can also find me on Twitter. I am TJ Draper Pro, and uh, I'm also on Facebook, facebook.com slash TJ Draper. And, of course, uh, most of my online energy is focused on Movie Byte, where I post stuff daily except for yesterday where we had some technical difficulties but uh mm. post stuff it's daily well deserved you're pretty good at it thank you thank you 
And uh, so anyway, uh, we didn't. Uh, Michael, are you still on the line? Yeah, I think so. I don't know. Okay, yeah, we we didn't uh, we failed to get your information out there for people. Where can people find you uh, on the internet? Oh, well, I'm actually kind of a recluse, so. Okay. <laughs> okay, uh, I, I am kind of, but yeah, it's just I'm, I'm on Facebook, Michael Minkoff. Uh, it's spelled M I C H A E L M I N K O F F, and uh, the, and That's also I've got a foundation that I'm that I do a lot of work with that I found. Oh and, yes, and I'm president of it's the Nehemiah Foundation for Cultural Renewal. That's uh, renewthearts.org, so people okay. can check that out. It's it's pretty. Uh, pretty interesting basically we're just trying to promote and produce good christian art which uh, is not marketable actually <laughs> i know what you mean <laughs> so uh, all right and joseph where can people find you well tj i'm joseph darnell so find me at josephdarnell.com that takes you to my facebook page i'm also joseph darnell on twitter and my personal site is jivingjackalope.com so Read my other stuff there. And if you wanted to get my other movie analysis, I write stuff for Movie Byte as well. All right. And uh, I will put, um, I'll put all of Melinda Snodgrass's info into the show notes. And uh, she will also have a profile now that she's been on a podcast. She'll have a profile page on the Movie Byte site. And so you'll be able to catch up with her there and find out where her website is and stuff like that. And uh, you can find the show notes at moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast slash 22 because this is our 22nd episode. So that wraps it up. Thank you, guys. And have a good one, TJ. 